Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always virtually uh, by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how's it going? Good. How are you? Not bad. We've got uh, quite a bit to get through today, uh, but it's just it's just the two of us today. No guest. Uh, just the two of us. You and I. We can make it if we try. Uh, <laughs> we, we've got a few news items, but like the the big story all the time really is just like the economy and the collapse. And the reaction to that, whether that's in the streets or in you know the halls of the Grand Sarai, uh, and, and and this week is no different. The main topic that we're going to be talking about a little bit later is the government's plan. They finally came out with the full plan to redo the Lebanese economy and financial system and all of that. Uh, we mentioned it last week uh, when it was just a draft. Um, now that the final plan has come out, though, we wanted to sort of take you through a, l- a little bit more detailed of what the plan entails. What is it? What, what all does it cover? All of that stuff. But before we get to that, of course, we we have several other news items also mostly related to the economy uh, and to protests and stuff like that. But we start out, as has become usual for us, with a, an update on the coronavirus. We're recording this on Sunday afternoon. Uh, the latest that I have heard, uh, and this is from yesterday, was that Lebanon had 733 cases and 25 deaths so far. Last week, those numbers were 707 cases and 24 deaths. So uh, a few new cases, one new death. Um, and some of these new cases actually came from repatriations of Lebanese who were abroad and uh, came back on these special flights that the government has organized. But not all of them. There's also is still some community spread here in Lebanon as well. Uh, I, I think it's interesting to look at the number of active cases in this case uh, as well. And the number of active cases has remained in the 500s for over three weeks now. And so it does look like we're still bending the curve, like uh, like we mentioned last week. However, the prime minister, uh, Hassan Dieb, uh, has said that he he's expecting a second wave in July. And he said this will be uh, less intense, though, if we follow the proper measures. However, if we don't, then it could be more intense. So the government is definitely not looking at this as this is the end of the road. We're just going to open everything up and everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. But there could be another wave and we have to be prepared for that. And we have to be prepared to, you know, probably do the same kinds of things, lockdown, uh, social distancing, quarantine, all of those kinds of things that that we uh, are currently doing and we're currently seeing. The Lebanese lira is still somewhere. We're, we're not entirely sure because most uh, Sarafin, most exchange houses have been closed since Tuesday. And, and so it's hard to get a good handle on the rate. However, from what I've seen, it seems as though it's roughly still around 4,000 lira to the dollar, which is more than 60% off of the value of, wh- of what it used to be, uh, 1,500. And, and that, of course, is continuing to really make changes on the ground and, and bring people out to the streets. Uh, j- just as we saw the week before people starting to come out this past week, we saw a lot of people starting to come out to the streets and not all of them peacefully either. Yeah, the protests have returned and with a different character than before, more focus on riot style protesting. So a lot of destruction of the banks, some attacks on on like light attacks, obviously, with a couple of Molotovs on uh, the central bank in uh, Saida and protests on the central bank in Beirut. But overall, it's taking the form that we kind of expected it to, to take, which is, you know, more violent action, less peaceful, big demonstrations more targeted actions that are very, you know, more dramatic, more violent, etc. But there's no violence that is really scary to me or anything like a big social phenomenon. There's no violence against people. There's no kidnapping or assassination or anything like that. It's not like organized violence at all. It's just a reaction to the situation rather than, you know, anything really organized. But we've seen these protests in different parts of the country. Most importantly, in Tripoli, we saw uh, like large protests, but also very long kind of scuffles between the army and protesters there and they turn more like kind of military situations where the army is is in this mode as if it's fighting a war you know following protesters in the alleys shooting rubber bullets etc and one of the rubber bullets that i mean we call them rubber bullets they are bullets but just coated uh, shot by the army allegedly led to the death of 
فواز فؤاد سمان هو از 26 year old citizen from Tripoli and uh, his funeral and the situation and the mood overall in the country after his death kind of turned more angry as well so we had more protests the following day we had obviously a funeral in Tripoli that turned into a protest as well and the the interesting thing is that for the first time in a long time the army is being looked at in negative light this is not normal in Lebanon that so many people criticize the army and uh, very publicly yeah the army has not had a good week pr wise in in addition to allegedly killing this protester the next day they put out a video army command put out a video on social media that sort of juxtaposed pictures of the army distributing aid boxes with pictures showing them getting attacked from the night before and asking the video asked the question this is how you give back which uh, <laughs> no, i mean they 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 took the video down i think within hours uh, it wasn't up for very long but the very fact that somebody thought that this was a good idea was just a, a really terrible oversight and also in addition to this stuff there's been a lot of videos just taken by activists by bystanders showing the army doing uh, some things that really don't look good you know there's a video of one tracked vehicle an army tracked vehicle it, it, that appears to deliberately slam into a car and uh, partially run it over there's a video of soldiers throwing rocks off of the roof of a building there are other videos of beatings uh, being carried out by uh, lebanese soldiers all of this is just it adds up in, in a week when you see these kinds of terrible things being committed by the army which at one point at very least was the you know most trusted institution in Lebanon and now i'm i'm not sure if that is still the case they really have overreacted here and they've taken such an aggressive posture towards the the new outbreak of protests definitely and one thing we haven't mentioned is that actually a few people who were protesting inside the in the south were also arrested and they were released yesterday and the committee for the defense of protesters the lawyers committee said that they talked to them to the protesters and they testified that they have been tortured uh, while being detained by the army intelligence and uh, that they were electrocuted as part of this torturing so like so many news are coming out and the videos that she talked about the scenes that everyone is seeing and still despite all of these actions the army thinks that it can fight back with a very provocative with an aggressive kind of pr stunt and uh, i'm so glad that it didn't work it's really it was so provoking like fawaz uh, was still being like it wasn't even uh, his funeral yet in tripoli like it was really literally a few hours after we knew he he died uh, people were charged up they were angry and then the army released this video comments were devastating to the army so they had to take it down but I'm I'm really glad that we're reaching a point where you know okay this is a trusted institution but it was not trusted for the right reasons you know it was not trusted because it really deserves the trust so it's good that we're getting to this collective consciousness moment of you know oh this uh, the, the army is not as good as we thought and we need to be critical of it as well uh, yeah exactly and and in addition to this very muscular approach from the army we we also have the prime minister coming out sort of casting aspersions on some of these protesters Th- this week he said what is happening is not innocent there's a systematic and deliberate destruction of institutions their intentions to cause strife between the army and the people th- these kinds of things sort of sort of hinting at these malignant figures that are embedded with protesters this is one of those ideas that is uh used to discredit protesters now there may be a certain level of truth to it but trying to distinguish between like the true protesters and the the bad protesters is probably a futile exercise uh to begin with but uh certainly the prime minister is partaking in that exercise and also the united nations special coordinator for lebanon jan kubish is also participating in that exercise this week he tweeted about hired and politically manipulated suspicious groups no sort of confirmation or evidence offered anything like that uh he was challenged on it uh by journalists on twitter and i've seen nothing so far to explain that so that is very problematic yeah the us embassy also jumped in i mean re- really i mean the us embassy is uh, we're used to kind of statements from all kind of major countries um, embassies in lebanon interfering in our affairs it's something that we're not so shocked by but the united nations special coordinator saying things like some of the protesters are mercenaries because they're attacking the army and banks i mean fuck off what gives you the right of categorizing the, pro- the protesters and 
what is the political agenda that you're going with to say these things? Like I was really provoked by this statement because it had it's completely unnecessary. It's just saying, okay, so what it's saying in politics, right? This is a politics podcast. What it's saying is the United Nations is standing by the Lebanese authorities in their violent crackdown on protests. They're saying the legit the actions of the army are legitimate. This is what it's saying when you take a position like this, you know, you you um demonize everyone who is taking slightly violent action and this action these actions are so not violent compared to what the system is is doing to people every single day so it's a very shameful position in my opinion obviously the u.s embassy as well and a lot of people everyone needs to comment whenever people fight back so that's uh, that's quite normal yeah yeah i i mentioned the sort of like the narrow critique of kubish's tweet but then there's also like the broad critique you know that doesn't differentiate between types of violence so smashing up a bank seems to be the same thing as attacking an innocent bystander. Though those two things seem to be equal when organizations and embassies put out statements like this, it seems as though they're they're not making any sort of distinction there between de- destruction of property and actual harming a person. And and then also just more even more broadly, I think there's a problem with this because it, it sort of it, this fails to recognize that Lebanese people are are faced with a pretty bad choice right now. Uh, peaceful protests alone has done really essentially nothing. There, there's there been nothing that's positive that's been built, really, uh, that, that's come from the peaceful, peaceful protests so far. So if you're saying, keep on just doing this thing that hasn't really worked and hasn't really produced any tangible results, you're essentially saying, well, you need to remain in humiliation really what they're saying is that banks facades and the banks themselves the property the physical property is more important in the big picture than people's dignity what this is what this perspective says you know like it's better that you stay calm indignified like in, in a very humiliating situation as you're saying than fighting back if it involves the destruction of glass and printers and paper Exactly, exactly. So in addition to uh, passing the financial plan, Cabinet also passed uh, a few anti-corruption measures this week. It specifically did pass four measures on Tuesday involving like things like investigations and audits, implementing parts of uh, the banking secrecy law, and also uh, relating to oversight from the court of audit. Although I have not been able to actually see these measures, I'm not entirely sure what they do on the ground. By the way, the Progressive Socialist Party, Wale Jumlat, and the future movement of Saad Hariri, uh, they were uh, vehemently against these measures. They, they, and the reason that they oppose them isn't because they are, you know, saying they're coming out against anti-corruption measures. The reason they are opposed to it is they view this as a political campaign, primarily from Aoun, President Aoun. But also, they they think that these measures can't really have a fair and just effect until the judiciary is independent. Uh, you can look at you know their position in a positive light and say, well, no, that does make sense. We do need an independent judiciary if we're ever to have any hope of uh, having you know uh, an anti corrupt any sort of anti corruption push. Or you can look at it in a negative light, I guess, which is, well, of course, there's an excuse not to implement these incremental reforms. And and as far as that goes, I do not know which answer is it is more correct. I don't know if you have an idea, Nizar. Yeah, I don't know. You're always in this dilemma in Lebanon. Whenever something that looks good happens, you're always wondering whether it's actually it will have good results or and it's out of goodwill or that's just part of a, of a political agenda and it will be biased and favoritists, etc. So I don't know, man. I don't have a better answer. And uh, I think the big event, though, that we have to talk about this week is Riyad Salemi's speech. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Riyad Salemi spoke for 58 minutes, a long speech that oof. addressed to the nation. Yeah, man, oof, because, you know, if you're listening to to this guy for 58 minutes, you have pains in different parts of your body like his his arabic is <laughs> strangely bad and he's not he's not really convincing now he speaks etc and he take didn't take any like unconventional approach to what he's saying he was very you know repetitive of a lot of same old talking points so let's kind of go through what he said most of the the speech was meant to do two things mainly to respond to Hassan Diab in the kind of beef that has existed between them in the last few two weeks, let's say. And in that way, he kind of responded to Diab or he sent some shots at Diab in in, uh, in many ways. He said that 
you know, I will not speak with emotions, meaning that Diablo is speaking out of emotions and not out of, you know, science and what actually happens. So Riyad Salim said, you know, I'm a man of law and numbers and facts, etc. He kind of tried to portray himself as the technocrat as opposed to the politician who is Diab, which is funny. But a very good, uh, like in general, it's a good, it's a good defense of his position uh, to do that. It's a good way to reverse it. He said he defended the 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 circulars that the central bank has been uh, issuing, the decisions it's been making uh, concerning uh, with dollar withdrawals and other things. And on that, apart from defending them and saying ridiculous things such as you know the latest circular, the one that you, you we talked about in the podcast that allowed people to withdraw their dollars in lira which is the catastrophic one for the for the value of the lira and increases the deterioration of the national currency he said uh, it added it like improved people's purchasing power but because they had access to their money and because you know we gave them the money on a higher rate than the official 1500 lira to the dollar rate but also what i think more provocative about what he said about this is that he said we didn't have to go back to the government every time we make any circular which is the ridic- ridiculous thing to say about this circular specifically right or about any of the recent ones because these are like major economic policies almost like major monetary policies that are, have economic and livelihood effect that are replacing other potential actions by the government you know to help people's purchasing power or you know any of the objectives that uh, uh, they're supposed to 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 help in or support in so it's not any other circular so you can't just say yeah we don't go back to the government uh, in this specific circular anyway he also said that you know diab's numbers he went into this whole numbers thing when he was saying where he was saying like Diab's numbers were not true and were not accurate and they I wish we they consulted with me or with us before they uh, announced these numbers and he he went uh, on this little rant about the haircut saying you know I don't know why people are talking about the haircut although really I mean why wouldn't they with the math that we have in terms of deposits that can be paid anyway Salami is like uh, talking about the haircut is frightening to these de- depositors and we should not talk about it at all which is ridiculous because i mean the haircut all the haircut is is saying is the the banking sector owes people more money than it can than it can give out the haircut's already there it's the, it's the haircut is the hole in the ground and and saying that talking about it is you know a bad thing is ridiculous yeah, and uh, we, we're not at the time where we should be worried about what depositors feel, you know, we're not like attracting any deposits now. So banks aren't even opening accounts, for God's sake. So like you're not uh, at a point where you're worried, what will they do with their money when they hear this talk about haircut? They won't touch their money for the next two or three years for sure. So who gives a shit? You know, this is not... Not, it's not their confidence that matters so much as uh, the confidence of the general population and the and the uh, and the and the financial situation and the state of the lira. And yeah, and, also- and 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 actually, uh, sorry to cut you off, but uh, and and actually, a swift haircut or like swiftly dealing with the problems in the financial sector would actually be good for confidence because once you get this all taken care of, once you get things restructured, if you do that very quickly then you can have you can restart on a solid foundation and people are going to trust the system more quickly yeah i agree to that as well and also like what is happening so far with the circles of the of the central bank there is a de facto haircut that's been happening when they give you dollars in lbp so you have to go and withdraw them in lira and then go exchange them at the exchange shop and lose 20% or 30% of them that's a haircut you know it's just that it's targeting everyone in the middle lower class mostly so Salome doesn't see it as very worrying because you know these people don't really make important decisions for their financial system based on on how they're feeling so it's a very biased view to say the least uh, anyway, we're not going to go through all the details, but he also defended the, the fact that the, the central bank has been funding the state when the state has been, you know, corrupt and wasting a lot of funds and exp- doing like running on a lot of deficits, etc. And there's, there's this whole, you know, big debate about really whether he had responsibility or not in these things, especially that he was part of the process of making several budgets and he was never really complaining about any of this. He was never on a different page than the political elite uh, in government. So it's not really clear why now all of a sudden he's saying that, you know, they've been behaving all wrong, but I just had to fund them because the law said so. And BDL in the past has uh, restrained from funding the state or has threatened to cut, fund, stop funding the state back in 2018 for something related to interest rates and the losses of BDL. 
So, you know, if you've done it in the past, you could have done it more often, uh, you know, to use this leverage that you have to say, to tell the states, you have to stop wasting funds or else I'm not going to find you uh, in the future. And he defended the financial engineering um, measures that the, that BDL has taken and said that these measures kind of led us to, uh, to go to Sadr and uh, potentially getting all the money from Sadr. And they bought us time for the Lebanese government to implement reforms. And he was like, unfortunately, the government has not implemented the reforms that should have been implementing. Uh, but we did what we had to do, which is buy time. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense because he was not buying time for any specific policy. There was not really any plan, any credible plan on the table. It was even before McKinsey uh, in 2016, for example, when the financial engineering happened, it was a total chaos on the political level. It was not like uh, it was a vacuum, an extended parliament, etc. It was not like a time to say, oh, looks very promising in the near future, so let me buy some time. So it just made huge profits to the banks. And this is a point that I want to make. Uh, Riyad Salemi is trying in this speech to say, what I did was legal, what I did was responsible from the technical side. Or sometimes it went too far maybe in like in financial engineering, but we had to do it. And he's portraying himself as a civil servant. And I think we should not see him purely as a civil servant. He's a man of uh, with, with a lot of interests uh, and a lot of connections with the banking sector, especially in the real estate sector. And all of these decisions he has made over the last, you know, I don't know how many years, 30, almost years, are uh, to the benefit of certain people, certain classes in the population. And he himself is being is known to be very, very rich after this uh, career. But also, like, just how much money, how much profits the banks and the real estate companies did, thanks to his policies, is insane. So we should always look uh, look at this from a political economy perspective. There's a huge um, need or, or a desire for profit accumulation that was driving all of this process, rather than, you know, Haram Salemi, he had to submit to whatever the state uh, wanted him to 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 lend it in terms of money so that they can spend it. And in general, I think it's just uh, to, to kind of wrap up on, on Salemi, I think it's just fascinating how far he can go in terms of not recognizing um, mistakes. Like everyone now is saying the monetary policy was not sound throughout this time, trying to focus so much on the peg and on nothing else and the high interest rates and everything. Like he's trying literally to lift all kind of responsibility of himself. And that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and ultimately, this is a line that just isn't going to work. I, I, I don't think, you know, Salemi has been the governor of BDL since 1993. His term is up in 2023, three years from now uh, and 30 years from when he first began. You know, I, I cannot imagine a possible reality, uh, not to say it's totally impossible, but I can't imagine a possible reality where he is reappointed governor for another term in 2023. In fact, it's very difficult to even see him serving out the rest of his term because once you've been a part of the Sulta, the, the ruling power for this long and this, you know, integral, you know, he he is one of the architects of the current financial system. Uh, and in fact, he's, you could say he's the prime architect. Him and Rafi Hariri are the prime architects of this. And when that model has failed, then you don't let the person who built it just get off scot-free. Yeah, agreed. All right, on to the main event. Uh, this week, Cabinet passed the financial recovery plan. And you can go online and find this document. It is available in both Arabic and English. So, So let's sort of go through just very quickly like the the document structure so the document itself if you're looking at the english version and for page number references and stuff like that all of these will be in the english version uh because that's easier for me the, the english version is uh like 53 pages long including appendices so it's actually it, it's quite short overall for this overarching document it is a pretty it, it's pretty skim on a lot of the details unfortunately. But, but what we see within the document is it starts out, of course, with an executive summary that's a few pages long, and then uh, sort of a background and recent developments uh, for a few pages. And then you get into like the, the actual program itself, starting out with the objectives and strategy, and then the foreign exchange policy and balance of payments dynamics. We have another section on the medium-term macroeconomic framework. And then you get to really the heart of it, I think, which is the economic policies. And under those economic policies, it goes into fiscal policies, uh, dealing with 
the state. So a, a lot of stuff about reducing expenditures uh, of the state and generating more revenues for the state. Also under economic policies, there's a, a very a vanishingly short section on public debt restructuring. It's only like two pages or, pages and a, or a page and a half. Then there's a section on uh, financial sector restructuring. And then this goes into, like it, it talks about the overall strategy and objectives and then goes into restructuring of BDL and banking sector restructuring as well, because all of it's going to have to happen. And, and then it also goes into, uh, under this economic policy section, uh, it goes into reforms to promote new economic growth. And, and then it goes into appendices and the in the appendices we have why we have to resort to the IMF. Why can't we just do this on our own without external funding? Well, there's a pretty convincing argument that that would be very bad uh, for everyone. There's an appendix on estimated balance sheets after the suggested devaluation. Uh, there is an economic strategy for 2020 to 2025 for uh, certain sectors of the economy, um, as well as like social affairs and displaced people. And then there is an appendix on um, the estimated cost of the social and economic support measures. Yeah, so I, I um, one of the notes is that, you know, reading the appendices isn't a bad idea at all in this case. It has a lot of content that would otherwise be in the report, but for some reason was uh, moved to the appendices. In general, yeah, that's this, this structure can help you like navigate the, the document if you're trying to read it or if you're planning to read it. It's not very scary. It's not very intimidating in terms of its uh, jargon, except in certain places, obviously, that are more uh, finance related. It's only 50 pages or so, and it's also broken down into like digestible paragraphs, a, a whole lot of it is. And so you can sort of, it really is a document that you can sort of skim through and get a really great idea, a really great feel for what they're uh, thinking about doing. So I would highly recommend that you at least like look over a few pages. Okay, so this is the structure overall. The in terms of the content, uh, we're gonna go over the main stuff, the main things that you know the the whole plan stands on. We're not gonna go into the details of the financial process and the plans, etc., because you know that would be tailored to a very specific kind of audience that, and and you can find information on that elsewhere, and you can look at the plan for detail. But in general, what the plan is saying. Are uh, you know some main pillars around nine ten points that are considered main pillars in the plan? Restructuring public debt, obviously internal and foreign debt, and the plan is to reduce it from one hundred seventy six percent of the GDP to one hundred and two percent in twenty twenty. So this year through the like after the negotiations with the lenders, and then in twenty twenty four it would be ninety eight percent. So it's not as much a reduction as a you know as big of a reduction as I expected, uh, because, you know, the GDP is is um, is getting much smaller anyway. So it's with the recession, etc. So it's not really very dynamic. I expected something more radical. I think they're tailoring to what the IMF wants to hear. If, if I can just add very yeah. quickly on that note, there there's two important things here. And that is, you noted that that big drop in, in the debt to GDP ratio happens this year, 2020. So the plan assumes that the government is able to cut a deal with the Eurobond holders this year and in order to put Lebanon on a sustainable track. Now that's doable, I'm I'm sure, uh, but it's not a lock. And and then the, se the second thing is that, like I mentioned, there's only two pages on public debt restructuring in, in the document. How exactly they're gonna do that and their strategy going into these negotiations, they, they gave us really, no light on that. Yeah. And then the second main pillar is restructuring the banking sector, which is also a very important requirement for getting over the crisis. And because, you know, Hassan Diab has been talking about how the banking system in Lebanon is, is you know, flawed, the whole model, etc., and the role of BDL. So there's a plan to restructure the banking sector, restructure BDL, and minimize losses of what we, or what we still have in terms of uh, liquidity and assets here. Yeah. The, in the document, they talk about you know, just these huge losses for the financial sector as well. I just want to note that. So BDL would take a 121 trillion lira hit, impairment of liabilities, basically money that's no longer there or liabilities that are no longer there. Banks would take a 154 trillion lira impairment of liabilities. 
so so these are truly huge numbers and here again we're this we're basically talking about the haircut we're talking about this hole that somehow needs to be filled through some measure either yeah like a, a, the impairment of liabilities a haircut or something that amounts to a haircut yeah uh, n- now it's important to note here that the the government is committed in in this paper to sparing as many depositors as possible and all of them, if possible, with uh, no sort of haircut or anything like that. But that doesn't really seem too likely. So so a couple of the things that get done in this document is, well, well how do we cover these holes in BDL's balance sheet in, uh, and in the bank's balance sheet? And it suggests for BDL the creation of a public asset management company, which would basically hold key government assets, excluding oil and gas assets. And and that would include equity stakes in the main state-owned enterprises, as well as real estate assets. And then the profits from this would go to BDL, allowing it to face its remaining obligations to the banks, according to the document. And as far as on, on the banking end and on the actual depositor side of things, the individual depositor side of things, there's a suggestion that a deposit recovery fund be created with certain deposits targeted for a bail-in that they're transferred to this deposit recovery fund. Uh, however, all of the details of this and, and exactly how this works seems to be left to the future. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's not very clear. On which basis the deposits will be chosen to be, you know, which deposits will be sent to the the recovery fund. But anyway, the next big policy of the document is a devaluation of the lira. Officially, for the first time, the Lebanese government is accepting this uh, this policy after, you know, Hariri had mentioned that for a long time, this was the main problem uh, that the IMF had with with uh, with Lebanon. You know, a main obstacle for supporting Lebanon is that the Lebanese government and the central bank has, have refused to officially devalue the lira. So the plan is to devalue the lira from 1,500 to 3,500 for every dollar. Or thereabouts. And then gradually increase it by 5% per year to reach almost 4,300 lira for the dollar in 2024. But in general, it will be a more flexible floating kind of foreign exchange uh, rate rather than, you know, the fixed one that we had before with a very, very limited margin of fluctuation. Anyway, this devaluation, the purpose behind this devaluation is to reduce the trade deficit, most importantly, apart from the fact that, you know, in the market, the lira has depreciated a lot, but also uh, devaluation will help reduce people's capacity to buy imports. So it will reduce the demand for imports. So automatically the trade deficit, meaning how much money exits the country to fund imports versus how much money enters the country will be reduced a bit uh, by that. And uh, it would make local industry more competitive. This is what the plan says as the main advantages for this policy, Uh, especially that, you know, when we have, when we're paying the wages now of, for example, 1.5 1.5 million uh, Lebanese pounds. Now they mean much less than they did before. So this means that the local wages are much lower on the international level. So products uh, produced here should be more competitive. But this obviously depends on a lot of things that we can't get into uh, right now. Um, and here it's very important to mention that the government mentions clearly that it will stay, it will keep uh, subsidizing uh, the import of fuel, medicine, and wheat, which right now is being subsidized by basically uh, giving dollars at the official rate to the importers of these uh, items. And capital controls will stay till at least till 2021 and then will will be gradually lifted. And this is very important because without that, the whole plan is useless. If you can't control the money that you already have and prevent the the outflow of of money that exists, then the problem will be worse. And we're, we're talking about capital controls, like actual capital controls here, not just the de facto capital controls, but actual government or mm-hmm. or BDL imposed capital controls that equalize things, uh, create a much more more fair playing field for depositors. And by the way, this is something that the government has not yet been able to get done. Yeah, totally. And this is we'll get to this in the end about the politics behind it uh, and and how feasible this whole thing is. Anyway, to go on with the main pillars, there's also obviously fiscal consolidation, like reducing spending, government spending, and increasing government revenues to make the budget more balanced. And this will be done through several measures. Most importantly, I want to focus on this. Obviously, apart from tax, like cracking down on tax fraud and smuggling and all of these things. 
there are some significant policies here. Reducing electricity transfers through removing the electricity subsidies is uh, is one of the main policies. But the good thing is that they say after electricity is uh, accessible 24-7 by everyone. So that's something that's very important. I don't know whether they can still play within this policy to kind of maneuver to to uh, to uh, eliminate the subsidies before we get proper electricity for good prices. But anyway, this will happen uh, definitely. And this has been recommended by the IMF among other agencies before. Uh, the other big policy is to increase revenues is to change the tax system, uh, specifically in terms of the rates and make it more prog- making it more progressive uh, on the on the highest income uh, earners. I'm not going to go into the percentages. They're all in the document very clear. Uh, but the corporate tax, the income tax, the tax on profits from deposits in the banks, income tax on capital gains, and then a lot of a lot of these all of these taxes that should be increased will be increased. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, and um, there will be on the more negative side there will be increase in the tax on gasoline and a minimum price for a gasoline uh, tank of 25,000 Lebanese lira and there will be no cap anymore so the state will not subsidize the, the gasoline when the price is too high in the market anymore and they will add 1,000 lira tax on gas oil and increase all the fines after the lira is officially uh, devalued because then you know if you're collecting all the taxes in Lebanese pounds and the Lebanese pound is half of its original value then it doesn't really uh, increase revenues, so they have to increase the fines as well. How much they increase the fines? The, de- the devil is in the, de- the details of all of these things, obviously. And on the side of reducing spending, there are also some worrying things in terms of because obviously austerity, some sides of austerity are needed, like reducing waste of public funds, etc. But it also focuses on reducing the size of wa- wages uh, in the public sector through a number of of of. Um, of measures that are basically around freezing employment in the public sector, stopping promotions, only employing people if it's a very critical position and someone has retired, etc. So this approach of austerity in public sector jobs is adopted in its uh, entirety. Yeah, and, and you'll notice that, uh, and this is sort of like a recurring theme for a lot of the sections of this, a lot of the pillars of the uh, plan, and that is a lot of these measures, we've heard them before, or we've heard versions of them before, and now they're being tweaked to apply to this situation. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing really new about this uh, these policies mostly. And uh, obviously because a lot of these policies will have negative uh, impact on the livelihoods of people, there's a, a social safety net kind of program that is being planned uh, that would be implemented with the World Bank, you know, where they would support the poorest families, 200,000 poorest, the 200,000 poorest families in Lebanon. And they're expecting the poverty rate to be very high. Uh, maybe this these assistances this assistance won't reach all the the poor families. That's quite clear from the numbers because we're talking about 50 and 60% uh, poverty rates. But anyway, this is in the plan and it's considered basically the only aspect of social protection that is in the plan. There is also a focus on increasing competitiveness in the market. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second, but it's also there implementing uh, an, an anti-corruption strategy is also there in terms of public procurement reform and in terms of independent, a more independent uh, judiciary. In addition to other things, these are the main things, but you also have like details on how to mitigate the losses of, of, uh, of base major entities when you're doing all of these financial reforms of BDL and the banks that you mentioned, they, they talk about them in, in more detail. They focus, they give most detail, I think, about on, on uh, the restructuring of the financial sector and the banking sector compared to most other sections. And they mention things related to environmental reform, sustainable uh, development, etc. But the thing to mention about this plan is that it's all reliant on external funding. And here, according to the plan, we need at least $10 billion in the next five years under an optimistic scenario uh, in order to fill the gap that we need from external financing and and obviously more money in the future after that. And we need all the money that has been promised in SADR for investment infrastructure because the plan kind of relies on SADR and the the capital investment program associated with it as the main source of investment in infrastructure. Uh, And that's very important to note. And that SADR money is actually on top of the $10 billion. Yeah, exactly. So we promised eleven billion dollars in the in the first stage of SADR that be twenty one billion dollars overall. So big big amounts of money that are expected to to be entering the country uh, according to the plan, and the plan relies on them. Uh, yeah. So let's let's take a look at this 
overall. So we just went through like this huge laundry list of things. And and I think that's one of the strengths of the plan. It, it's that it's very comprehensive. It's very holistic. It, uh, it may not, it may be skimpy on certain details, but the overall vision is one that realizes that, oh, well, we can't just do fiscal reform of the state by itself. We can't just deal with our monetary crisis by itself. We can't just deal with, you know, the bank's having mis mismatched balance sheets by itself. We have to solve all of these problems at the same time, um, which is of course a huge undertaking, but it's precisely what has to happen. And this document recognizes that, which is, I, I, I mean, that that's a great start. Now, a, a, another thing that I think is very good that I like about this document is that there isn't any happy talk. Uh, at least not in the words, I, I, I don't think. Uh, you know, the, the document literally starts out with the sentence, the Lebanese economy is in free fall. Uh, <laughs> and, and the tone of the document oh, is, is pretty dire, right? However, having said that, if you look at the numbers, hmm. they seem to me in a lot of cases to be kind of optimistic that, you know, $10 billion is all we're going to need over the next five years uh, in support from the IMF. That seems pretty optimistic. The fact that the uh, GDP could be growing again by 2022, that seems extraordinarily optimistic, even if this plan is implemented to the letter. So, so there's a little bit of both there. Mm. I, I, I like the fact that they aren't really pulling punches rhetorically, but on the other hand, I, I do think that it is, it's definitely looking glass half full when it comes to a lot of the numbers. And I agree that in general, the in terms of economic policy and the economic structural transformation that needs to happen, they kind of uh, adopted what most people, most economists have been recommending from different parts of the ideological spectrum, not really only people on the left or liberal or right side, etc. It's more like uh, what everyone knows as self-evident as the things that need to happen to the Lebanese economic model. So that's good. There is a focus on monetary policy, obviously, because of what's happening now. That's better than before. You remember in the McKinsey plan when we were talking about it, it was just weirdly completely disconnected from monetary policy. It was just focusing on economic policy. And that didn't make any sense because we all know that economic policy without a monetary policy that is in harmony with it cannot really uh, affect the change that it needs to do. Other good things about it is that it's, for example, there are things that have been uh, that previous governments have not uh, uh, supported or proposed in any way, like a move towards a serious move towards more progressive income taxation. I think this is important, and I like that the fact that they mentioned it. I I know that they did mostly to appease to people on the left side of the spectrum who have been talking about this for ages. On this point as well, I just want to mention like so many policies that we've been talking about as important policies for the Lebanese economy for the last two or three years could have helped prevent this crisis. And this is the most frustrating thing. It's like they're doing everything too late. But anyway, the problem with the, the, the tax system that they're proposing is that it's not really bold enough. Like they're still accepting the brackets that already exist, which is to me insane. Like the highest bracket in the income tax system is 225 million lira per year. That's $150,000 on the old, whatever, on the old uh, exchange rate and much less now. So that's really not a lot of money. Why don't we have a marginal tax rate since we have a huge inequality in wealth and income in Lebanon? Why don't we have a wealth tax, which uh, only makes sense in, in light of what exists today? If you don't want to do it on the bank deposits because they're going, subjected to a haircut, you can do it on other assets all other assets that people are uh, own and accumulate while the majority of the population doesn't have any. So that's another point where kind of the, what hasn't been proposed kind of sets off or, or, or brings down the value of what has been proposed. Yeah, I, I think that uh, this speaks to a sort of this lack of imagination really with this document in that there are a whole lot of things that we see that are just recycled proposals, whether we're talking about fiscal policies, you know, revenue, stuff like that, taxes, or whether we're talking about like how to reinvigorate certain sectors of the economy. These are all things, or anti-corruption measures for that matter. These are all things that we've heard before 
and literally nothing's been done before. So why is it different this time around? And why don't you have some more new approaches? Because at the end of the day, this document really does boil down to an austerity document that the IMF can look at and say, okay, well, this is uh, this is pretty good. We'll give you money if you you know go through with all of this X, Y, and C. It's all about austerity fundamentally. Yeah, as you were saying before the recording, it's like the austerity handbook. It's not so different when you go from one country to another. <laughs> and uh, I don't think it's only a problem of imagination as much as it's a problem of political interest and vested interest in these policies. Like they can't go far enough. And one of the things that was uh, quite provoking to me was the fact that they focus so much on, on the competitive of the Lebanese market, which is good because the Lebanese market is not competitive and capitalism without competition is the worst shit ever. And uh, at the same time, they don't mention how they're going to crack down on the oligopolies which is one of the most urgent laws that we need in order to to break down the, the cartels that are causing huge increases in prices that are not economically organic. So 15 laws proposed for the business environment, but not one of them is meant to break up these oligopolies. I think that's very shameful and that's quite political. I, I, I would say that this is a direct, like uh, based on, on, on basically uh, an otherwise a veto from political forces if this would have been included. But anyway, uh, this is another comment about, you know, how it didn't go far enough. Um, another thing I want to mention is about the lira and the devaluation of the lira. I can't propose a better policy than fixing the lira at a different rate. I mean, I'm not for a floating lira uh, rate because that would be catastrophic. It would go up to probably 10,000. But devaluing the lira is not enough in itself, right? If it's, if it's not coupled with an increase in people's purchasing power, then it's not good. And it will not be because people's purchasing power will be keep decreasing with the decreasing value of the wages. If you don't protect people from an increase in economic inequality, this is also very dangerous with a lot of dollars being concentrated in few hands. And if you don't control, if you want to control the lira, it's not always enough to just devalue it officially, right? You have to crack down on exchange shops who are controlling the market today and controlling the import market through the exchange market. So if you want to do this, you have to, you have to crack down on them and you have to ensure that your capital controls are not completely counterproductive in a way that, you know, People are not send, making transfers through the banks. They're going through the black market or the parallel market to make the transfers, uh, which means that the, the 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 purpose behind this, you know, in terms of the balance of trade and in terms of uh, like uh, money, the dollars not leaving the country will not be achieved. So you need many requirements along with devaluing the, the lira to uh, to make this a successful policy. And I don't see those in the plan. So this is for the like the specifics, but more generally, I think the the in terms of the the framework that has been, that this plan adopts, it's really the same old neoliberal framework. In terms of you know, th is it really going to change the nature of the economy, reduce poverty, reduce inequality, unemployment, etc.? I think the the plans that are suggested for the economic sectors don't go far enough. Experience shows that you need strong and direct intervention from the state that prioritizes certain sectors. In, uh, in manufacturing and agriculture and steps in really aggressively in order to make sure, make sure that these sectors develop and become you know, solid in the, re the regional and international scale. Um, you also have a problem, big problem, with the social safety net that goes along with you know, the neoliberal prescription of you know, just protect the poorest. Th this is what, not what we need in terms of when we have such high poverty, unemployment, inequality, etc., and very wide kind of problem of, of lack of access to healthcare. We need social protection system that protects everyone and universal programs that protect everyone. Uh, and I think this is one of the main problems. The fact that you know the social safety net that they're talking about really depends on what the World Bank allocates for it in its own like balance sheets. I think that's quite outrageous. It's not what a government coming after an uprising for socioeconomic rights should do. You know, like this is this plan works as a proposal for the IMF. It doesn't work for a plan for the government that came after an uprising. That's really uh, very important to remember that this is not any government. This is government that says I am responding to the needs of people that have been voiced in the streets. It doesn't do that when you go into uh, the, the the approach that it adopts in terms of investing in people versus focusing just on the economic uh, numbers, basically.
and it acknowledges a lot of the bad stuff that exists, like the bad reality, but it doesn't go far enough, as we were saying, in terms of tackling this reality to reverse it. It doesn't redistribute wealth or income or power in a very significant way. And that's also worrying because, for example, just take an example, like uh, the, one of the main problems in the political system in Lebanon and basically one of the main obstacles facing social change is the clientelist system that links people to their zaims. Uh, how is this threatening this clientelist system uh, in one way only, in my opinion, which is by eliminating public sector jobs as one of the main resources that this Zama give to their followers. But when you look at the social side, the social policy side, you see that there's not going to be a serious investment in the social protection system and there's a reduction of government spending overall. So this means that people will be resorting to these clientelist networks for other things, such as healthcare or other services or jobs in the private sector, of course. So in, th- in terms of the, the, the social contract overall, this whole the approach that this government has brought is more technocratic and it's really, it does not answer to the needs of the moment in terms of problems with our social and political system and not only in terms of uh, the the economy, uh, you know what I mean? Not only in terms of the numbers and the finance system, etc. And one of the last things that come to mind is the, the, the issue of privatization and selling state assets, uh, which, which I think was dealt with uh, without the same kind of seriousness that you would expect. They mentioned this fund for public states, uh, for, for the public assets management quite, you know, briefly, they don't say really how privatization is perceived or how it will be uh, sought after. They don't uh, mention, for example, which state assets would be good to sell and which wouldn't be. They talk about it as an intergenerational justice problem. And I think they're very right in this, but they don't answer to this concern in the plan itself. And the last thing I want to mention is that uh, the, the, the whole thing to be implemented is really up to uh, the will of political parties and political forces in Lebanon. Uh, just take one example that we mentioned before, the capital controls, right? The capital controls law has been dropped from discussion in government because Berri told Ghazi Wazni that we don't want capital controls anymore and it's not there anymore, right? They're, the government is not discussing it. It's not going to implement it anytime soon. And it's a very fundamental pillar in the plan, you know? The plan cannot work without capital controls because the dollars will, would flee. So if the banks decide to change their policy, we're fucked. We need official capital controls. So how are they promising us capital controls when last week they couldn't do it? So that's very, you know, that's very worrying. And it all goes down to the politics. So we can be optimistic about the numbers when we're writing these reports. But in reality, what would happen depends on political will and vested interest. Absolutely. And and I think that this is an absolute key thing for all of our audience to remember this is not a law that was passed. This is not a series of decrees that was passed. This is a policy paper that was passed, uh, including certain policies that the government has been unable to get through so far. And and so there is a whole. If you are if you are unhappy with the plan, if you think that it doesn't do enough in certain areas, there's room to change this. The, nothing is set in stone yet. This is in many ways more a starting point than anything else. And it will change when the if the IMF approves it and uh, gives us a program or or agrees to give Lebanon uh, to support Lebanon, it will have additional conditions that would be added to the plan. So this is really not the final draft, so to say. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that is definitely all for us. If we if we record any longer, Susan is going to kill us, Nizar. So I think we better wrap it up there. <laughs> totally. uh, we uh, we uh, I believe should be back next week uh, with another coronavirus uh, quarantine edition of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. And until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. <laughs> The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.